Hello and welcome to Wrestling with Mark, a Lenten offering from St. James the Less Episcopal for Lent 2021. and welcome to our Lenten uh, Bible study, Wrestling with Mark. We're looking at Mark chapters 10, 11, and 12 tonight. Bob Hughes, one of our able parishioners, has decided uh, to get in the hot seat tonight and join Harrison and I. Uh, the last three weeks have been a lot of fun. We thank those that um, joined with us and uh, watched um, on the internet or are listening to our podcast. Um, but tonight we're going to be looking at... Uh, a lot of teachings of Jesus, and also his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and so um, big days. So thank you, Bob, for being with us. We're glad Happy to, to be here. Harrison, thanks for braving it through for our fourth week. Yes. And we will uh, jump right in. And Harrison, I think you have our first reading tonight, <clears throat> starting with chapter 10, verse 1. Yes. Jesus left that place and went beyond the Jordan into the region of Judea. Crowds gathered around him again, and as usual, he taught them. Some Pharisees came, and trying to test him, they asked, Does the law allow a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a divorce certificate and to divorce his wife. Jesus said to them, he wrote this commandment for you because of your unyielding hearts. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Because of this, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. Inside the house, the disciples asked him again about this, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if a wife divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The people were bringing him children, bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them, but the disciples scolded them. And when Jesus saw this, he grew angry and said to them, Allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them, because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever does welcome a God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Then he hugged the children and blessed them. Okay. A reading that's hard to hear and a reading that's nice. What did you hear? What jumped out at you? This is hard for me. This is one of the, probably an example of a reading that I struggle with. Um, Jesus was uh, so understanding. Um, I, I don't know, maybe that's not the right word, of, of, of human nature. Um, and so forgiving of human foibles obviously the whole message is one of forgiveness um and i mean i i think that there are so many ways that human beings can 
two human beings who are married together might need to not be married to one another. Um, that it just seems, this seems like a very difficult thing. It, it just seems like it, 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 it seems to not contain the same level of forgiveness, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I, that's why I wrestle with it. Sure. Well, it's called wrestling with Mark. It's, it's a good thing. That, yeah, well, this is wrestle worthy. Harrison, did you have a response or thoughts on I that? Have, well, I have the same wrestling match um, and I have been divorced um, and I believe me wrestled with this quite a lot. Um, and it's complicated, but where I landed is I think God is more pro-life, a person's life, than pro-marriage. And if a marriage is simply undoing you um, in a powerful way, um, and it's a choice between the marriage or just holding yourself together, God wants you, God would prefer you to be alive than married. Um, and this might be just reading too much into it, but where he says, if a man leaves his wife and marries another, I think, I hope what that means is he's talking about somebody that is married, but just sort of gets infatuated with somebody else and casually leads his wife to get to somebody he's, to put it bluntly, has the hots for. That is adultery. Um, and that's wrong. Um, that's what I think he's talking about in those verses. Um, so if somebody, if the marriage is killing you, um, I think God wants you to live. Um, the other thing that verse that relates to this, at least in my own wrestling match with this bar verse, um, at another point, the disciple, the Pharisees called Jesus on the Sabbath and eating, working on the Sabbath. And he said, um, the Sabbath was not made from man. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is was stood for the whole law. So these laws are made for us, not us for them. I agree with that. And for me, it's um, because we come from a tit-for-tat world, Bob, you're a lawyer. So God bless you. I couldn't, I couldn't do that job. Need, need, need more of that. That's <laughs> We uh, um, we don't need to trade one set of legalisms for another. Um, and the Pharisaical, um, very rigid approach. Um, I'm with you. I, be I believe that um, Jesus's message is all about forgiveness and transformation, metanoia, that changing of the mind, that taking a the uh, caterpillar and making it a butterfly. Um, and what I hear him saying here is the idea of God's hope for every marriage 
is that this will be a lifelong commitment. You know, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus is playing out all the scenarios, you know, because it used to be if a, um, a man could divorce his wife, all he has to do is say it three times. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And it's done. You know, you could say it two times early in the marriage and save it for the, you know, 20 years in. You say it that third time, that's a legalism. And they were divorced. No, And with no fault. I mean, they didn't have to give reason. Just, I divorce you. Um, but what Jesus is saying here, if a man does that and marries another, you know, he's, he's, he is committing adultery. Now, that was anathema to what their, their way of thinking. Because a man, what? You know, that's, he, he, he was pointing to the men. But he was also saying, but it goes both ways. You know, women, the same. God's hope and desire is for this um, to be your one lifetime commitment until death do us part. I mean, we even have that language built into it. But once, um, death occurs, you know, then people are free to marry again, and it's not considered adultery. Um, you know, and I think Jesus is setting the ideal here, but we all know that none of us live up to that ideal in any situation. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've seen this used as a weapon much more than a scalpel. Um, and then we've used it to beat up people um, keep people from the ministry, um, keep people out of the church, um, and, uh, and all kinds of things. I mean, I think of my Catholic brothers and sisters and, you know, some of the gun wrenching stories I've heard because they were in an untenable situation. Um, I don't think God wants anybody to be abused, but this is right. I mean, that's one of the many possibilities of something that, that could trigger that, you know, that I, I will say that that line, uh, and I'm probably misquoting it, but you know what what God has put together, let no one tear asunder, um, is one that's read at marriage services and one that I've always it's always been very stirring to me. You know, it's 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 almost like um, you know, like a call to arms, you know, for among married people too. Just, you know, you need to put the time in and, and the effort in to try to make things work. And um but the flip side is that while I personally don't take the Bible like every verse of the Bible literally, it's sort of hard to read something like this. And, you know, I mean, it was pretty explicit. <laughs> and it was Jesus himself who said it. Um, it's it. That's what makes it uh, something to wrestle with. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about going back to the earliest stories in Scripture. First thing that happens after God creates everything is a marriage. That's, that's how foundational this is. And it's also, you know, when in the garden, when they are promised that they will become like gods, that's so often how it was tied to the idea of sex being that original sin. Because in the act of the marriage, um, new life is created, which is as close to being like God as we can be um, from the earliest understandings. I'm not talking about modern understandings. But that's, you know, that's that's how foundational this is. Um, and I think, um, Harrison, I think you used the word and I would echo it, is about flippancy. You know, just um, that there's nothing more serious or more sacred here 
And I think that is what Jesus is calling us to, the profound nature of this relationship. Um, and what's that? Uh, remember that Life's Little Instruction book that came out 30 years ago, the little plaid book with the 400 and some axioms. Um, and one of them, it, I remember as a teenager when I read it, um, uh, be very careful in whom you choose to marry. From that decision, most of life's joys and most of life's sorrows stem directly. Rough paraphrase, but and that's truth. I mean, I, I as a minister, I can't tell you how many happy people and unhappy people I have sitting in these chairs behind me just to discuss that. You know. Yep. Uh, You want to talk about the happy verse? <laughs> I was about to say, nice transition. Do you want to talk about the children? What did you see in the children, Bob? You know, um, what I saw was uh, what made, you know, of course, I'm familiar with that story. Um, for me, ha with, a, you know, a teenage son, um, uh, you know, I actually think about sort of the inverse of that, which is how do you get a child to come to Jesus? How do you, you know, how do you get a you know a teenager to not think church is boring? And um, anyway, I don't, that that's the thing that it's not really directly related to that. It's not the message that was intended there, um, um, but. It's sort of the the analogy is if you know I can see why it's a, an important thing to do that and you know I know I've tried when I'm teaching Sunday school and uh, and you know it's not an easy thing to get kids um, jazzed up about things sometimes mm -hmm. in this world you know when there's so many competing things you know anyway that's what that's what i thought about when i read this read it harrison you have anything um well i agree with and sympathize with what bob says having had teenage children and you just kind of hold on during those years and um and thankfully mine have stayed in the church um um I like what it says about the nature of God's kingdom is um, it's just accessible enough for anybody on any level. It doesn't require education, expertise, knowledge, anything. It's something that comes as naturally to children, in fact, more naturally to children than it does to us adults. And um, so maybe to enter into God's kingdom, we need to let go a lot of our sort of adult stuff and lighten up a little bit. And I don't know. Um, that's, that's how it spoke to me. Well, I guess it's, it's, it's all of us recognizing that we're all God's children and, you know, coming at it from that direction yeah the way a parent 
trusts, I mean, a child trusts their parent implicitly and just doesn't, doesn't question where the parent's leading them. Mm-hmm. He, he did say children, not teenagers. <laughs> and, and I, I, I thought about that too, because certainly the young ones are a lot, a lot easier to lead. It might have been a very different story. Yes, I've, I've, uh, I've often speculated why that's, we didn't hear a lot, we don't read a lot about what Jesus was like in his teenage years. <laughs> Forgive me, teenagers out there, if anybody's listening to this, I yes. adore all of the teenagers I know, but having been one, I know it's complicated. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a reason why in Jewish society that you're considered a man at 13. Yeah. I mean, the, the age of accountability there, um, we said adulthood at 18, you know, that's our. Well, yeah, and then some things, 21. I mean, you know, right. right. Uh, and they take it down to 13, you know, that they, they see that transition earlier. Um, but good stuff. Harrison, you want to take that next reading? Oh, isn't it me? Uh, oh, sorry. Yes, it is, Bob. I apologize. No, no Harrison's worries. One, you're two. Okay, so um, starting with verse 17, right? Yes. As Jesus continued down the road, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus replied, Why do you call me good? No one is good except the one God. You know the commandments. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he responded, I've kept all of these things since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. He said, you are lacking one thing. Go and sell all you own and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But the man was dismayed at this statement, and he went away saddened because he had many possessions. Looking around, Jesus said to his disciples, It will be very hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. His words startled the the disciples. So Jesus told them again, Children, it's difficult to enter God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. They were shocked even more, and they said to one and each other, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them carefully and said, It's impossible with human beings, but not with God. All things are possible for God. Peter said to him, Look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, I assure you that anyone who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or farms, because of me and because of the good news, will receive 100 times as much now in this life, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms, with harassment, harassment, and in the coming age, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem with Jesus in the lead. The disciples were amazed while the others following behind him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he told them what what was about to happen to him. 
Look, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. The human one will be handed over to the chief priests and the legal experts. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will ridicule him, spit on him, torture him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise up. And just for folks who are listening uh, tonight, we're reading from the Common English Bible, and they translate the human one. Um, that's often how we hear the son of man. So it's uh, the quintessential person. Person, and Jesus, that's a self-referential term for Jesus. So we have this rich guy who's done everything right. But he's lacking one thing. Um, and then this... Uh, Call to uh, what we gain in Christ as we go. I will say that I am unfamiliar with this. Is the first time I've ever read the Common English Bible translation. I'm much more familiar with the New Revised Standard Edition, and I don't know, probably some other ones, King James, obviously. Um, and so it's really interesting to me to, to see the subtle differences between the language and 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 how it brings other other things up maybe that you'd never really thought of you heard the same verse over and over um but this time i i was really struck by when it says um when when he says teacher you know i've kept all these things since i was a boy it says jesus looked at him carefully and loved him and i don't know why that just made me <laughs> i don't want to cry a little bit yeah um uh, and i think um and it's in there in the other verses, but it doesn't jump out as much as it did for me tonight as well. Um, the This guy is so close. And I think Jesus hurts for him because, you know, he's tried to do so good for so long. Um, and there's, he's got his one hang up that's so blatantly obvious. That Jesus says, you're just obsessed with stuff. Um, and so often we take this. Um, as an axiom for all of us. Um, and I know people who are very godly people who have massive amounts of wealth who do great good with it. Thanks be to God. You know, God trusted them with that. God did not trust me with that um, because I would have been like this guy. I would have been, yay me, I'm so good. Um, the other thing that uh, we often miss, um, and it's very American, um, but we don't see it that way, is we equate goodness with rich. Um, that if you are well off, you have been blessed by God. You know, we even have language for it. I must have done something right. Or, you know, uh, they've been blessed, you know. Or we thank God for our blessings and we name stuff. Isn't that sort of the Protestant? I was, as I, I have this, this vague recollection that there was sort of a, um, you know, they felt like if you were if you were successful, it must mean you were a godly man or a person. Protestant work ethic. Yep. Now that's right. The the label slapped onto it by a sociologist, and it only because it was a German guy, and he was looking at the um, the German um, Protestant, um, and not uh, you know lower class and the Catholic lower class. That there was this um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps work ethic in that culture. And we made it universal, and it's not. Um, in America, you know, it comes out in what is called prosperity theology. Um, the Joel Osteen folks that um, name it and claim it. Um, I think that, yeah, I, you know, um, I'm, I, I've got God's favor because I have my private jet. 
if if I'm rich, it must be because God loves me. Um, idea. Um, yeah. I was. I'm struck. I love this story. First of all, it's it's just powerful to me. Um, and um, one of the keys to me is this young man said to Jesus, "Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life?" It wasn't how do I receive it, but is how do I earn it? And Jesus answered that question. If you want to earn eternal life, you've got to give it all, you know, and um, and all really means not just all that you have, but your life. Um, that's the price that none of us can pay. And this young man couldn't pay it any more than I can. Um, um, but he sort of saw the whole relationship of salvation as something that. If I'm good enough, I can get there. And Jesus showed him that he wasn't, as he shows all of us. Um, if we receive eternal life, it's a gift that we don't deserve or earn. Suddenly that camel analogy makes a lot more sense. Right? Yeah, and so um, the more we think, yeah, like our riches if we're trusting in them for some sort of reward or sign of reward or favor, they will be an impediment to us. You know, um, the other thing that I think of that I've thought of when I've heard this lesson is um, he, he doesn't, and, it, and it's really brought forth, I think in this translation more than other translations is it's not just your goods, but it's everything including your loved ones. I mean, they, they list them off, you know, your mother, your father, your, everybody. Um, and it reminds me of a, um, one of my favorite hymns, which is a mighty fortress is our God. And there's a, there's a verse in that that says, um, um, where, where it talks about you let, let goods and kindred go. And I don't know, I grew up with a very strong sense of family. I still have one where family just almost comes first over everything. And um, it, that's just a hard, hard thing to wrestle with when you think about, you know, you know, he's saying, if you really want to earn it, then you got to let everything go. Yeah. yeah. So I have a question, Rock, this is for you. In verse 30, where it says, you'll receive a hundred times as much in this life, if you give up these things, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, with harassment. What's the harassment? Yeah, that's a good question. I've never I, seen that before. I don't remember saying that either, and I, I sort of stumbled over it because I was like, I have no idea what this means. <laughs> I, I'm in the same boat with you guys. That one caught me off guard um, in this translation. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I, I'm that one puzzled me. Um, while I'm looking at that answer, I do want to um, bring up one thing um, to go back to um, the divorce conversation from the first reading. Um, Bob, another way to look at it is when Jesus is approached by the rich young man and he says, Good teacher, and he goes, Don't call me good. No one's good but God alone. You know, um, if Jesus can say that, 
You know, he says, what does the scripture say? Don't do this, don't do that, including adultery. You know, and, and if Jesus says no one's good, you know, and he puts adultery in the list, which is his bone of contention with the marriage thing earlier, he obviously recognizes that uh, that hardness of heart that why Moses created the law, um, the, you know, that's God's hope for us. It's kind of like, you know, if I wanted to restore a 57 Chevy, everything original would be great. But, you know, sometimes you have to replace the engine. Most of the time you have to replace the upholstery. Right. Is it ideal? No, but it is, you know, what it is. And, and it also comes, you know, uh, you know, make fun of me. Um, one of the things they teach you in reading uh, statutes and contracts is one canon of construction as they say is that you gotta you can't just focus on one thing if it says one thing here and then it says another thing over here you've got to try to figure out a way to read them together and in other places you as you're well aware it says there's nothing that can come between you and god and um there's nothing that that you can't get god's forgiveness for um and so that was another that sort of in my view um Trumps it. <laughs> sure. No, thank you. That's great. Um, Harrison, back to the with harassment thing. I I looked it up in another translation, and they did, they have it in there, but they say you're going to give back homes, families, mothers, brothers, sisters, children, possessions, and then they say along with the persecutions that go with it. Oh, so you'll get a hundredfold. But you'll also have a hundred times as much trouble. Um, well, I was thinking it might be that that's where the priests come in. You're supposed to you're, you're supposed to preach as lost before you preach as found. <laughs> that's that's interesting though that the because it's sort of like it's it's sort of like saying if you're willing to if you really are willing to get up. I mean, this frankly, the apostles did. And give up everything and follow him and like give everything behind, then you are going to get a, a you know hundred times the blessings that you know Joe Schmo over here is not is not going to get who didn't do that. But you're also going to have a hundred times the hardships. <laughs> um, yeah. And maybe that's just sort of like you know truth in advertising, right? Like why well, we even have a phrase for that? No good deed goes unpunished. Right. Well, also take up your cross and follow me. I mean, which is the next part. Yeah. I mean, it's just that's the that's prediction as well. Yeah. Well, good. I'm going to jump into that third reading just to keep us on track. Uh, starting with chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And they said, allow one of us to sit on your right hand and the other to sit on your left when you enter your glory. Jesus replied, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or receive the baptism I receive? We can, they answered. Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink and receive the baptism, excuse me, the baptism I receive. But to sit at my right or left hand isn't mine to give. It belongs to those for whom it has been prepared. Now, when the other ten disciples heard about this, they became angry with James and John. And Jesus called them over and said, 
we know that the ones who are considered the rulers by the Gentiles show off their authority over them and their high-ranking officials order them around. But that's not the way it will be with you. Whoever wants, you to, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. Jesus and his followers came to Jer into Jericho. As Jesus was leaving Jericho together with his disciples and a sizable crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, Timaeus' son, was sitting beside the road. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was there, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, show me mercy. Then he scolded him, telling him to be quiet. But he shouted even, the loud, even louder, son of David, show me mercy. Jesus stopped and said, call him forward. They called the blind man, be encouraged, get up, he's calling you. Throwing his coat to the side, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind, said, the blind man said, teacher, I want to see. Jesus said, go, your faith has healed you. And at once he was able to see, and he began to follow Jesus on the way. James and John, pretty cocky. Well, uh, you know, in a lot of our readings that we've uh, done already, um, Mark has these wonderful juxtapositions where James and John think they see the way things are. And they weren't as intimates. Peter, James, and John were the big three. You know, they got to go to the transfiguration. And so they, they thought they were hot stuff. And Jesus only has a left and a right-hand side. I don't know where they put Peter, the backside. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, they uh, were all, um, you know, but here they really were blind to the way things are. And the Bartimaeus who's blind, you know, is given his sight and his faith has healed him. Um, I don't think that's too much of a stretch, but. Forgive me if you, this may have even been covered in one of these broadcasts already, but. Isn't there another story where somebody says, let me, uh, I guess maybe, maybe it hasn't come yet. He's like, let me go up on that mountain with you and, and build a house, like the two houses. Well, that's, that's a transfiguration. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Peter wanted to do that. Yeah. It's sort of, that's, that's, I think it's similar idea. Mm -hmm. um, Usually it's Peter that gets called on saying something stupid, but this time James and John did it. Yeah. Whenever somebody says, I want you to agree to do some whatever I ask of you, <laughs> that's just sort of a red flag. I will never say yes to that. It's you know that something is coming to be aware of, be on guard about. Well, I mean, to me, that just is a signal that, you know, I, I'm about they to. They know ask. it's wrong. It's a, big, well, it's a big deal. Like, what I'm about to ask you, I'm, you know, you know, um, it's also not the way things would happen these days. And and I, you know, it's sometimes it's easy to forget that we read this with our sort of, you know, I don't know, modern is maybe not the right word, but our current sensibilities, right? And I this and I think brown nosers. Um, but you know, you I didn't know these people. I mean, you know, and I didn't I, I wasn't with them to see them interact. And and you know, you could I could see 
two people who just thought that Jesus was the most amazing guy in the world who said, I would like nothing better. And it has, you know, it's not coming necessarily from a self self aggrandizement standpoint as it is, you know, I can think of nothing that I'd like better than to be with you forever on your right and left, you know? So I guess maybe, maybe I need to cut him some slack. But not too much. And here's why. In the other gospel accounts, the story opens up with their mom telling them, go, go ask Jesus this. Ah. He's egging them on to jockey for position. Okay. And also his explanation is whoever wants to be great must be servant of all. Right. Um, And I, you know, the washing of the feet, I think this is a critical. Um, God's kingdom is oriented in a fundamentally different way than kingdoms on this earth. Um, um, you, the first will be last and the last will be first. The servants will be the ones that are held given authority. Those that put, that are humble will inherit the kingdom. Those that are self-aggrandizing will lose it, um, you know, um, will not lose it, but will be diminished. Um, you receive this kingdom like a child. Um, I just think we need to constantly remind ourselves of that, um, um, especially, you know, those of us that are in the church business. Um, Yeah. Or the business of talking about God, not not pointing any fingers at anybody. It's just that I just feel this deeply. Um, yeah, I, the the term I like to use, Harrison, are professional Christians. Good, good phrase. Yeah, poke myself in the ribs a little bit. Um, you know, not that we're we are pros at it, but. Um, we should model it better than everybody. We should model it better than we do most times. Um, my wife works for the diocese, and I can't say too much, but she was in a high-level meeting the other day, and someone was talking about how um, in business schools now they talk about servant leadership. And there's, you know, in, in their leadership programs, they talk about servant leadership, and right. this is seen as cutting edge. Um, and Steph was relaying this, and in our program that we were in um, 20 years ago, it was seen as cutting edge, but it was also taken directly from scripture. I mean, right? Was, you know, cutting edge when it's been around for two thousand years is exactly. Little... That's what was so funny about it. Number one, they got it from Jesus, and number two, however you look at it, it's not cutting edge. It's uh, basic leadership. Yeah, leadership one hundred and one. Yeah. Um, just uh, for the interest of time, we're going to finish up that chapter. Um, good stuff. I like where these conversations are going. Lots of energy. So thank you for being with us for chapter 10. Um, and we'll be back with chapter 11. Thank you for joining us for chapter 11. And we are back and uh, we're going to jump right in. Um, Harrison, you want to take the first reading with 11.1? All right. When Jesus and his followers approached Jerusalem, they came to Beth Page and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus gave two disciples a task saying to them, go into a village over there. As soon as you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt 
that no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the master needs it. He will send it back right away. They went and found the colt tied to a gate outside on the street, and they untied it. Some people standing around said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him just what Jesus had said, and they left them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes upon it, and he sat on it. And many people spread out their clothes on the road, while others spread branches cut from the fields. And those in front of him and those following were shouting, Hosanna, blessed blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And after he looked around at everything, because it was already late in the evening, he returned to Bethany with the 12. So we have the beginning of the Passion, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Thoughts? say that um when i was young uh in growing up in south dakota there was um in one of the towns in south dakota they had an annual passion play and i don't know how i got roped into doing that because i'm sure i wouldn't have been really wild about it but i i got put into a costume and um i remember the um the this this scene you know with the crowd scene where everybody's laying the palms on the ground and then the contrasting scene, you know, about on uh, where people are saying crucify and crucify. And to a certain extent, the same confusion I had back then, I still have right now, which is how could you have had people flip that switch in the course of a couple days? Um, and I just, I'm not sure I really, I, I just feel like there's, there's more going on here that I've, that I've never really. Although I love the vision. I mean, I love the, um, the triumphant coming into the, um, the city. Um, and I was reading some of the footnotes in the translation and they were saying that at one point, they said something to the effect that um, references to Jesus being the son of David were sometimes um, references to, veiled references to the idea that the Messiah would be, you know, a military or, um, you know, governmental leader, as opposed to what Jesus turned out to be, which was not that. <laughs> um, and so I don't know, maybe this is one of those things where people are getting super excited that we're going to get the Romans out of here. We got, you know, the successor to David coming in and he's going to really, you know, clean house. And then it becomes evident when he's about to be, you know, that, that he's been arrested and maybe he's not as all that. I don't know. You know, certainly crowds are fickle things. You know, you're dead on right. Remember when you were talking about, um, the uh, transfiguration 
and Peter wanting to set up the booths. And then Jesus gives the first passion prediction. Um, well, I mean, closely related to that was Peter's confession that he was the Christ. Then Jesus gives the first passion prediction that he's gonna, the Son of Man must be handed over, killed, and on the third day will rise again. Um, and Peter says, no, 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 <laughs> that's not what happens. You know, culturally, they had this understanding that the Messiah was going to come in and kick out the outsiders. You know, that began with the Greeks. Um, and then uh, they traded the Greeks for the Romans. <laughs> and they still wanted the stinkers out and gone. Um, and uh, the stinkers were still there. And so um, and what's so ironic is that if Jesus wanted to claim that title and that understanding, he would have ridden in on a white horse. Because that's the military leader, and it talks in, in, in the prophecies of the Old Testament. It talks about um, he rides in on the foal of a donkey, which is a man of peace, not a man of war. So even while they're proclaiming this messianic title, with their understanding of that being that traditional military slash political ruler, it's actually Jesus is saying, "Uh-uh, <laughs> look what I'm riding." I'm not going there. Um, yeah. Was that in Isaiah? I think so. Yeah, I've got to uh, look it up. Yeah, I uh, um, one of the I don't know. Gosh, at this point, it's probably been thirty years ago, maybe twenty-five years ago. I don't know. When I was uh, going to church, lived in Arlington, and going to church at St. George's, the rector there at that time, Father Hall, did a class on the Old Testament and. I thought it was just fascinating to to read through Isaiah, which I'd never really done, and see where all the predictions had been made that that you know they're like, oh yeah, that's why they're signaling this because it was part of the established canon of of prophecy that had been come out of the the prophets. Um, so that's interesting. I'd, I'd I'd forgotten that that was something that was presaged in um, Isaiah. Mm-hmm. I learned in reading this tonight um, what Hosanna meant. I always thought it just meant something like hallelujah or, you know, just sort of an exclamation of praise. But it, according to the notes here, it says save now. Oh. And in uh, this, you know, the, the nature of humans um and especially crowds of humans that you brought up, Bob, earlier, and just how could they have flip-flopped. Um, uh, you know, there's some sort of deep hunger in us, um, and we will latch on to anybody that seems to be ready to meet that hunger or that need. And um, and I, I'm just thinking out loud, They they were expecting a you know, a conquering king, somebody that would liberate them from Rome, somebody that would, you know, do anything but die on a cross. Um, and um, and so they turned on him. They were pretty easily manipulated. Um, um, that's all. Um, I'm also just trying to imagine what it was like for Jesus, knowing what lay before him at the end of the week. Um, 
um, knowing the opposition that he was going to face. And, um, you know, Passion Week just puts it pretty lightly. I mean, talk about an intense time. It just doesn't get any more than that. All the adulation must have felt so empty if he knew what was going to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I and just felt sorry for these people. Um, it's, you know, I think of later on in the week, he's on the Mount of Olives, I think, looking out at Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen does her chicks, but you would not. Your house is left to you void. It's yep. not my house anymore, it's your house. Um, anyway, and then he goes in and enters the temple and just looks and it's so richly suggestive. And then he goes back. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't confront anybody. He just goes in and looks. He looked around at everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It, you know, it sort of reminds me actually of, um, you know, I, like I said, I grew up in South Dakota and, um, my dad moved out here a couple of years ago and um, I hadn't been out to Rapid City for several years and um, came back uh, for a funeral about, about a year ago, just before the lockdown. And um, it was wonderful seeing all of my old friends that I had not seen. But then I sort of went to all the old places um, and it was, it felt like this. It was just looking around, just, you know, looking at my house, which I didn't live in anymore and looking, you know, my old school, which I, you know, obviously don't go to anymore and looking around all these familiar places and everything. And I, that's sort of the, that's what that evokes to me is somebody he's going to some place that's thoroughly familiar and, and loved by him. Um, and it's, it's almost like a saying goodbye, I guess. I don't know. In this also the call before the storm. And Rock, it seems to me in this gospel, this is after Jesus goes to the temple at age, well, when he's, I guess, presented at his birth, after his birth, but also at age 12. And this is the first time he's gone back to the temple. Well, well no, he back to get he the money. yearly um, with the family. Oh, that's right. Yeah. As was their custom, it says. Um, but in Luke 2, it talks about him in the temple as a child you know, um, uh, asking questions. Now, it sounds like he's trying to get information, but their teaching method was the teacher asks the question and the students give their answers and the teacher corrects them. It's so a chronic method. Right. And with Jesus, uh, but they were Jewish. I mean, that's what we call it, yes. Uh, but, uh, so, but so Jesus was really the one in charge, even at 12. He was, you know, hmm. already that knowledgeable of the Hebraic scriptures that he could be the one asking the questions, um, which is pretty telling. Luke 2.52, as a middle school uh, chaplain, um, you know, that was a verse I preached on every year at the first chapel service of the year. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. Um, and, I'm like, and then I would say, do that this year. <laughs> Behave. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's the only reason I know where exactly where it is off the top of my head. 
Anything else on the triumphal entry? All right, Bob, you want to take? Sure. The next. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Chapter. Uh, sorry, verse twelve. Um, the next day after leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. From far away, he noticed a fig tree in leaf, so he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing except leaves, since it wasn't the season for figs. So he said to it, no one will ever eat your fruit. No, no one will ever again eat your fruit. His disciples heard this. They came into Jerusalem. After entering the temple, he threw out those who were selling and buying there. He pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He didn't allow anyone to, to carry anything through the temple. He taught them, hasn't it been written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a hideout for crooks. The chief priests and legal experts heard this and tried to find a way to destroy him. They regarded him as dangerous because the whole crowd was enthralled of his teaching. When it was evening, Jesus and his disciples went outside the city. I think that's what you told me to read to. Mm -hmm. yep. So what did you hear? I totally don't remember the fig tree thing. That is that on the regular lineup for, for readings? Because I I that just seems so odd to me. And when, then I read the little notes down below, and it made a little more sense, which I thought was interesting. Right. Um, we don't like I to touch this one. Poor tree. <laughs> we don't touch this one with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> this is one of those passages where Jesus does not look so nice. But what did the fig tree do? Well, did you read the notes down below? I did. I did. I'm just saying. Nice. I'm saying why. I didn't say uh, why we don't read it is because most people read it and they get really confused. Right. Like we were talking about earlier with James and John versus Bartimaeus, that people who think they see but really can't, and people who can't see, but then they can. Um, here we have this thing where it's not bearing fruit, and it is cursed. And then we go into the temple, and it m parallels that, you know, that the fruit that it has is nasty and gets cursed. It's symbolic. Yeah, the note down below says, on one level, his it's this seems disturbing because he seems to be punished the tree for not producing fruit out of season. The real point, though, is to show the coming of God's kingdom marks the end of the time of Jerusalem's temple. So, you know, there's such depth in in the Bible, and obviously some books more than others. That that uh, it's almost like you, it's almost like you need to go to seminary. But that's not true. Um, I mean, I think it helps, but I mean, like Ezekiel or some book like that, where, you know, it's just every single line is, has layers of meaning to it. And also it helps to really be thoroughly familiar with the entire Old Testament to really get the, the context of everything. And this is one of those things where it's, it's clearly a symbolic thing. And maybe, maybe that would have been more evident to a culture that was much more oral based and, um, you know, used to prying out meaning from stories, you know? Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like this resonates with the Adam and Eve sowing fig leaves to try to cover their shame. Um, and, um, and having 
eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I just feel like it's sort of this living parable of, you know, that time's over. Um, you've had your chance to sort of um, knowing good and evil be like God, and it has failed. There's been no fruit. All there have been is leaves. Um, and um, it does, it's sort of saying the same thing that he did going into the temple. It's sort of this picture of it, this living parable of it. Um, he went into his house, um, which is designed to be the place that brings all of the earth together to God, before God, um, either in prayer, where all people are coming there to pray or praying for all nations, for God's kingdom to come. And there's no fruit there. There's just business, corruption. Um, when I went to uh, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, this is the same trip that I told you about a, a couple of weeks ago, Harrison. But our day in Jerusalem, we had done the Via Dolorosa on a Friday. It was filled with pilgrims. <laughs> Jerusalem was a madhouse, you know, and uh, it was just a, a fascinating um, day to be there. And we get to the Wailing Wall, and I was so deeply moved. And the reason why you always see the Wailing Wall and people praying at it is that's the um, Jewish folks because they are uncertain where the temple actually sat and where the Holy of Holies actually was on the top part. Um, it is forbidden for them to go up to the top in case they accidentally stepped into what had been the Holy of Holies. So that's one reason why the, the Muslims can have the, um, the Dome of the Rock over what we believe to be the altar and the Al-Aqsa Mosque um, up on top of the Temple Mount. Um, and so that's why the Jews go to the Wailing Wall, because they can touch this retaining wall that was built um, when Herod fixed it up. Um, and that's as close as they can get and not accidentally step on the Holy of Holies. Oh, interesting. That's right. And so when you go, people have shoved little notes of prayer into the crevices between the, the retaining wall blocks. Um, but what you don't see, because you really can't, um, is there's about a third of the wall um, women can go to, and then there's this big fence, and then the two-thirds of the wall the men can go to. Um, and as you go up to the wall, that two-thirds where the men can go, um, on the far left-hand side, there's a little culvert door that goes into a tunnel, and the tunnel goes along the outside edge of the retaining wall. Um, you know, I'd never heard about it until I went there, and the, um, I was praying, and this um, an older Jewish gentleman comes up to me and, um, you know, tugs on my sleeve and I'm being polite and <laughs> he invites me to go into the tunnel. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. That's really cool. I'm going to go into the tunnel. And so we go into the tunnel and we get to the very back of the tunnel and in it, there's a little stand often like you'll see in a cathedral covered in candles and you can light a candle as a form of lifting up a prayer to God. Um, and uh, being the good seminary student that I was, um, I thanked him and I, I lit a candle and said a prayer. And then when I was done praying, he put out his hand, asking for you know a, a sizable gift for the candle that he let me use to say my prayer. You know, and none of this was prearranged or. But I'm like, there's still thieves in the temple. 
Well, I get. I mean, I totally would have been thinking about this particular verse. It, the other thing about this verse that I've always found very striking is there's not that many times in the Bible that you hear about Jesus being angry. Um, you know, he seemed like he was a fairly mellow and calm dude. Um, I don't know whether that's a very good thing to say or not, but anyway, um, you know, he, this is one of the times where he just totally loses it. Um, so I thought that's always been striking to me. Well, no, I agree. And I, I, whenever I hear, what would Jesus do? This is what comes to mind. Yeah. Never rule out flipping tables and having a timber dander. Um, this is also something that, you know, the average Christian is not going to, you know, modern Christian is not necessarily, except through their knowledge of the Bible, going to really understand the emotional significance of the temple to the Jewish people and, and how this was, I mean, uh, you know, there's really no way, there's no analogy that we could use. I mean, you know, I don't know, somebody setting fire to the, you know, to the cathedral or something like that, you know, or um, I don't know, something like that. But um, anyway, I, it's, it is a striking, striking um, reading. Right. Well, and especially coming from a country where we have a separation of church and state, supposedly. Um, and we also, um, what we consider sacrosanct as a nation um, is not the way the rest of the world sees us. I mean, it's not accidental that on 9-11, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were what people from outside our culture struck as the symbols of our power. Had they wanted to upset us in a way that would have really upset us, the Capitol building, the Statue of Liberty, you know, yeah. you know, the way we see ourselves is not the way the rest of the world sees us. That is not true of everybody. <laughs> oh, every, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. psychology one one, the right. Johari window. Um, you know, what everybody sees, what you see, what they see, <laughs> what nobody sees, um, and and here, you know, you're so right that they really did identify themselves. Because you had the tabernacle, and that was God choosing to be with them. But when Solomon built the temple, it was God uniting and not only being the God of this nation, but they were not only the chosen people, but this is the chosen home and the seat of God. The Holy of Holies. That's what the Holy of Holies was. The Ark of the Covenant was his throne. Right. Anything you, uh, Harrison? No, I think y'all said it very well. Wonderful. All right. So I guess we have the third reading. That's you, Rock. Yep. Thank you. Starting with verse 20. Early in the morning, as Jesus and his disciples were walking along, they saw the fig tree, our friend the fig tree again, withered from the root up. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look how the fig tree you cursed has dried up. And Jesus responded to them, have faith in God. I assure you that whoever says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and doesn't waver, but believes that what is said will really happen, it will happen. Therefore, I say to you, Whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you will receive it, and it will be so for you. 
And whenever you stand up to pray, if you have something against anyone, forgive so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your wrongdoings. Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem again. As Jesus was walking around the temple, the chief priests, legal experts, and elders came to him. They asked, what kind of authority do you have for, for doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I have a question for you. Give me an answer, and then I'll tell you what kind of, tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Was John's baptism of heavenly or of human origin? Answer me. They argued among themselves. If we say it's of heavenly origin, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But we can't say it's of earthly origin. They said this because they were afraid of the crowd, because they all thought that John was a prophet. They answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus replied, neither will I tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Jesus was canny. You know, he may not have been a political leader, but he read that situation super well. Um, uh, that's a that's like chess player. Like, you know, if I do this, then they'll do this, and then I'll do this, and then they'll do this, and then I win. You know, and that's that's the kind of thinking three moves in advance. I I've never really thought about that, but that's that's what strikes me about that last part. Well, especially in this last week, because they're looking for any reason to get rid of him or to shame him publicly. They keep bringing him these gotcha questions. Yeah. You know, like, uh, what's the old joke? You know, when did you stop beating your wife? Right, right. You can't answer that question. Whatever you say is incriminating. Um, and Jesus sees the gotcha question coming a mile away, yeah. I like how though they they wrapped up that fig analogy that maybe made it a little bit under more understandable to particularly when they sandwich the fig the first fig story and the second fig story and in between that is the temple which is pretty obvious what you know right and this is a day later this is so we're on Tuesday now of holy week wow. the um the 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 two things that I also struck me were um, the whatever you pray for and ask for, believe that you will receive it, and it will be so for you. Um, that's another thing that I have a hard time with, especially because I don't know. Based on my personal experience, I I don't think God necessarily gives you everything that you want, um, and I'm pretty sure he does. Yeah, well, that's a good thing. Well, that that can be a good thing, right? But I mean, I was, you know, it was fun, you know, I you know prayed for people that were sick to be become well that they didn't. Of course, yeah. And you know, I um, so anyway, that just that that struck me, and it, that's another thing that clearly I'm missing something. I'm you know, um, and I I realize that it resonates with the whole you know if you have. Um, the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Um, and so maybe that's really just a commentary on faith. Um, and then the second, then the sentence after that, where he says, whenever you stand up, pray, if you have anything against someone, forgive them. And that's, that's like right out of the Lord's prayer. Um, so um, that's also hard to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
but that's a different conversation. Well, and, you know, and he tells us to have faith about the moving the mountain. But I, I see this, um, once again, I think there's a lot of juxtapositions in Mark where you have something and then it's clarified by what comes next. It's either a mirror or a, or a, a juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here he's saying, you think I have authority over that fig tree? You can have as much authority and even more. I had a fig tree. You can have a mountain. Um, you know, that I'm here to give you that authority. Now, I think you're very right. I think I thank God that God did not give me everything I asked for. I remember some prayers that I prayed and thank God I didn't get what I asked for. Um, I think God gives us what we need. But at the same time, um, as someone who tries to be a leader in the church and to do what God would have us do, um, I do think we ask God for God's assistance and then we hand out shovels. Um, you know, I, I think it's both and. I think um, the act of faith is picking up the shovel and looking at a mountain and say, I don't know if I can move the mountain, but I can move this shovel. Where does that phrase come from? God helps those who help themselves. You know, the, it's not the Bible. That phrase. I know it's not biblical. <laughs> I but I'm not sure where it comes from. It's got to be old. I mean, the concept anyways seems anyway. But I think it's both and. I think I think God calls us to get on our knees and then to pick up a shovel. And I think you know, I mean, if 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 somebody ever saw you pick up a shovel and say, "What are you doing? I'm moving this mountain," you know, they'd laugh at you. But you get enough shovels and enough time, that mountain's getting moved. Um, the beautiful thing about Shrinemont, yeah, and you were just up there, you know, the the uh, the story of the people who were told to bring the biggest rock that they could find to build the shrine from and the whole valley came and their cartloads and brought the rocks and together they built an outdoor cathedral <laughs> to the glory of God. It's a beautiful story, um, you know, and they kept working on it until it was done. And it's still there. Thanks be to God. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. Um, the, uh, we, you know, I, I think that we, we are given the authority to do the miraculous. Um, but I don't think, uh, and I agree with you, I pray for people who are sick, but I haven't gotten off my job and gotten to medical school, school and gotten into research to find a cure. You know, that's not my calling. But for some people, it is. Um, you know, and that's, and I think that's what I hear. You have the authority to change the world. In dramatic ways, you know, and then you have the the nitpickers who are over here saying, "Who told you you could do that?" Um, yeah, yeah, I I like what you said, Rock, about you have the authority to change the world. Um, I I just think that Jesus is not. I, I'm trying to get at what Jesus is talking about here in this have faith in God. Um, if you have faith, don't waver. You'll say to this mountain, be moved. I I just hear in that um, that faith is what's going to change history. Faith is what's going to move history. Um, it's the people that know what they believe and 
and really believe it are not going to be swayed this way or that off course. Um, um, it sort of flows into the passage about authority, um, which is such an interesting um, thought. I mean, just truth that um, I think we're in kind of a, a, a weird place in history. Um, who speaks with authority today? If you ask just the general person, who has authority in your life? I think there's sort of a void. And um, um, I don't, I love this. I think Jesus, you know, it was a trick question and Jesus gave more than a trick answer. Um, um, authority comes from somewhere um, and it's not something that you can just claim. It's, it's there, if it's there, people recognize it yeah. and it will move mountains. Um, and it really is a faith-based thing, not a power-based thing. Right. Um, well, I, you know, I want to go back to uh, my sermon that I gave on Lent 1, but also we talked about it in the first week of these studies. You know, that mission statement from chapter 1, verse 15, now's the time, here comes God's kingdom, change your hearts and your lives, and trust this good news. Um, you know, that... It says that Jesus repeated, that was Jesus' message as he went out, um, that we, things don't have to be the way they've always been. You, have, you are now enabled and empowered to change the world, starting with yourself. You know, I wanna, how do I change the world? I change this. Um, and and, and how, do you, how do you change yourself? What, what gives you the power to do that? I think the answer is faith. That's, that's, amen. That, and, and, you know, that the other thing that reminded me was the story of the person who came to Jesus and just said, if I could just touch his robe. Mm-hmm. And, and then the, the way it reads is, you know, the pot, he felt the power flow out of him. And it's, mm-hmm. I've always thought that was sort of interesting. It was sort of involuntary faith, you know, power. Um, and that's very consistent with this. That's a really neat way of reading it. Thank you for both. I think both of you, great insights. Um, there's, this is just popping into my head as I'm listening to you all too. Um, there's this wonderful connection between faith and authority and who is greatest. Um, those that are servant or those that claim power. You tend to, I anyway, trust those who is where it's not about them it's about other than them it's about what they believe those people speak with authority to me and i have faith in them um so jesus servant ministry his whole person was not to claim power but to serve he rode in on a donkey um you know that's somebody that speaks with authority to me. And that's somebody I believe in. And that faith becomes this sort of guiding principle that um, I think enables me to, you know, do whatever little piece I can to change the world. Um, I love how these 
these themes sort of all work together in this interesting way that I've never really seen before. So thank you. I think this is, uh, this, I love conversations like this. I think that's really interesting. Well, and, and that's what we're setting up. And a wonderful thing about this, um, of all the Gospels, um, the original ending in Mark, and we'll get this in the next week's um, readings, it's left up to us because the whole, everywhere through this book, we are being challenged with the um, question that the disciples asked on the boat, who is this then that he can control the wind and the waves? You know, who is this? And we have the, the, all the, the authorities, and I put that in quotation marks, versus the authority, who actually has the ability to say, you know, and do. Um, and that's this repeatedly, that's the dance of Mark, is who is this? Who do we say this person is? Wow, yeah. And uh, that's the question that we're going to be asked, that we are being asked every day. Well, that's chapter 11. Thank you. And uh, we'll come back for chapter 12. Well, welcome back. We are on chapter 12 of the Gospel According to Mark. Uh, Bob Hughes is with us. He is our guest star tonight. And uh, Harrison and I are um, together again this week. Uh, this is a week three, and we are looking at chapter 12 in the Gospel of Mark. And Harrison, I think you've got our first reading from chapter 12. All right. Jesus spoke to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a, pen, a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Then he rented it to tenant farmers and took a trip. And when it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenants to sh his share of the fruit of the vineyard. But they grabbed the servant, beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, the landowner sent another servant to them but they struck him on the head and treated him disgracefully. He sent another one, and one they killed, and that one they killed. The landlord sent many other servants, but the tenants treated the, some and killed others. Now the landowner had one son whom he loved dearly, and he sent him last, thinking, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to each other, this is the heir. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They grabbed him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And so what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you read, haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is wonderful in our eyes or amazing in our eyes. They wanted to arrest Jesus because they knew that he had told the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd and said so left him and went away. They sent some of the Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap him in his words, and they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are genuine and you don't worry about what people think. You don't show favoritism, but teach God's way as it really is. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not? Since Jesus recognized their deceit, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a coin. Show it to me. And they brought one. 
And he said to them, whose image and inscription is on this? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus said to them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God what belongs to God. His reply left them overcome with wonder. Wow. So what'd you hear? He was really, really smart and good with words. I mean, seriously, that is about the best possible answer. And it's not just an evasive answer. No. It's a it's a real answer. Yeah. I mean it's it's a real answer. It just it it defangs the, the question. That that's that's what's brilliant about it, is that he gives them a he gives them a straightforward answer, but he's done it in a way that completely takes away the sting of of what they were trying to trap him on. Mm-hmm. So I I think that's and I repeatedly come back to this because we repeatedly miss it. Is once again he's fighting the the programming that they have let their brains be wired in um, that if they are rich they are blessed and they are obsessed with how can we have more coin how can we how can we have more and Jesus is like you know don't worry about more. Don't worry. Jesus says more money about more about money than any other topic, um, because we're so obsessed with it. That's that's our hang-up. Um, you know, he's like, you know, okay, Caesar's on it. Give it to Caesar. You know, give Caesar Caesar's, and give God God's. Um, yeah. But once again, we have this gotcha question. But we also have Jesus' gotcha story. Right. Um, the, the, this is going to reveal staggering depths of ignorance that will probably you know, re- require you to shun me for at least a year and a day. But um, the, 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 the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I know that's a, a echoing a scripture from the Old Testament, but what's the analogy here? I mean, is Jesus, he's the corner, he's the, the, the stone that was rejected. Um, but by whom? By the, by the authorities of the day? Is that what he the said? The religious authorities, yeah. Um, to, to modernize the phrase, y'all threw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's worry about the baby. Um, you know, what, what you deemed worthless is the most valuable part. Mm-hmm. You know, here's another one that's, um, that I've always struggled with a little bit is uh, the um, prophecies of death and destruction and, and judgment, um, you know, and how you juxtapose that with a, with a message of infinite love and infinite forgiveness. Um, and certainly he paints a disgraceful story that, you know, if to the, you know, if this were to happen in real life, you would hope that somebody got their just rewards. Um, um, 
but I mean, he, you know, he's, as he deals with this analogy, he said, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And I guess what he's, he's, again, he's, he's, he's not talking about people in general, maybe as much as he's talking about the religious authorities and railing against them. Sorry, I'm slow. Sometimes. No, 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 no. Well, they were acting like they owned the place. Right. Well, they, yeah, they, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's reminding them, you guys are the stewards of this place. Don't let, you know, you, I know you're acting like you own it, but it's not yours. Good point, Rock. Um, yeah. I mean, this was a parable told to a specific audience, not everybody. This was told to the religious rulers um, that were basically abusing God's, the vineyard that God had placed them in charge of. Right. Um, it wasn't told to the, the general public. Yeah. Set the scene, though. I'm at the beginning of chapter 12, where, where it starts out saying Jesus spoke to them in parables, and he told this particular parable. In my mind, I'm, I'm picturing, you know, He's sit, sitting somewhere, and there's a big crowd around him, and there's plenty of Pharisees and and scribes, and I never can keep them track. The Pharisees versus the Sadducees versus the scribes, and all that. But um, and but that's sort of what I'm picturing. Is it, this this is a message that he's? It's really a pointed message to those people, and and the rest of the people are hearing it, which of course is galling to the people that it's being told to the extent people are understanding the, the parable at all. So most likely he was in the temple. You think he was in the temple when he was Oh yeah, that? oh yeah, especially this last week. Because that's where he goes and causes all this problem. Because that's where the people were. Right. And he wanted a big enough space where everybody could come. And in Jerusalem, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's a tiny place. Yeah. And the only place with any elbow room whatsoever would have been the Temple Mount and that outer court where everybody could go. Jews, Gentiles, men, women. There was enough place for the animals. Place. Animals. Yeah, the markets to sell the sacrifices that'll be burnt on the altar. Um, and so, so that's where he is. The other thing, whenever Jesus talks about something, in my mind, you now once again, I, I can't say this is always true, but I always picture it in my mind that something just walked by and Jesus is using that as the foundation for whatever story he's telling. When Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, consider the lilies of the field while they're sitting in a field. Right. You know, um, when he's sitting here um, downplaying the religious authorities, my guess is that a line of relig religious authorities just walked by to have their conference. And he's telling the people, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I, I, I. Right, you know, look at these guys who just walked by. Um, Maybe with glasses of wine. <laughs> this is about weird, you know. Exactly, and you know, and he tells the story, and he's and the crowds love him. They love him, you know, and that's what is that's what's burning the biscuits of the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the scribes. Um, and then with the taxes, remember, this is just where. He had just turned the tables two days before where the money changers are because any coin with Caesar's head would have been seen as a graven image and cannot go into the temple proper. 
it could be in the outer court. That's why the money changers were there. Because Roman currency, which is the only thing they could legally use, and the Jews were given this rare exemption that in their temple they could use their own money. And so there are these guys that set up these tables. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Right. So this this idea of Caesar's head, um, um, this is what, I mean, once again, this is what's so greatly ironic is because they would have seen that as, you know, at worst, rude or uncouth. And at best, Jesus would be touching something unclean because it's idolatry hmm. to hold this graven image. And Jesus is like, give the, give, give, give the idols to the idol. Give to God, the, you know, give to God the gods. Right. This is, yeah. And that's a radically different approach to how you, we see this. Um, because we don't, we're not hearing it with their ears. And like you were saying earlier, context in, the, in these things are, is everything. And as he's sitting yeah. there in the temple, among, you know, the money changers are literally, who would despise him, you know, after what he did two days before. You know, I, I didn't, I guess I never really, this has been fascinating to me because this is the, you know, this is the Holy Week. And this sort of, so far at least, the the theme of Holy Week is Jesus ripping on the religious authorities of the day. Um, um, and it's almost like you can kind of see why it wound up the way it wound up, because, you know, eventually he pushed them to a point where they had to do something or they felt like they had to do something. But I never knew. I mean, that that that, that is a common theme throughout. And that's not it's never been obvious. To me. Um, so I'm really glad that we did this. One of the reasons why we're reading the whole book, you know, in, in one month is so that people can see context. You know, so often we, you know, in a sermon, we have time to talk about the trees, of the individual pericopes, the individual stories, um, and we don't have time to deal with the forest. And here, by doing all of Mark in Lent this year, we're trying to give people the gift of the trees and the forest. Because you're right, you read it entirely different when you see the entire narrative. And, and you appreciate the story in context better, right? You appreciate the fact that this is, hey, that's the same thing that he was saying that yesterday. And he's ripping on that, you know, and that's that's totally consistent with the fact that he just got really irritated with the tax collectors. And then now the fig tree story is beginning to make more sense. And and if he's riled them up this much by Wednesday, no wonder by Friday they're killing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anything else on that first reading? I want to keep us on track. All right, Bobby, you want to take a second reading? And this sure. is the one, 18 through 34. Right. Um, Sadducees, who deny that there is a, a resurrection, came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a widow but no children, the brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman. When he died, he left no children. The second married her and died without living, leaving any children. The third did the same. None of the seven left any children. Finally, the woman died. At the resurrection, when they all rise up, whose wife will she be? All seven were married to her. Jesus said to them, isn't this the reason, isn't this the reason you are wrong? Because you don't know either the scriptures or God's power? 
When people rise from the dead, they won't marry, nor will they be given in marriage. Instead, they will be like God's angels. As for the resurrection from the dead, haven't you read in the scroll from Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. You are seriously mistaken. One of the legal experts heard their dispute and saw how well Jesus answered them. He came over and asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus replied, the most important one is Israel. Listen, our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your being and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than me. The legal expert said to him, well said, teacher, you have truthfully said that God is, that God is one and there is no other besides him. And to love God with all of the heart, a full understanding, and all of one's strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all kinds of entirely burned offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered with wisdom, he said to him, you aren't far from God's kingdom. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Thank you. What'd you see? This was the reading that was that I that that Tracy and I had one of the readings we had in our wedding. Mm. I have always loved, and I love the the way that King the both King James and also the Book of Common Prayer says this, particularly in Rite One, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Um, but the reason that I liked it for our wedding was it starts off the King James version starts off and says, and one of them, which was a lawyer. <laughs> asked him this question. <laughs> and I also like how the lawyer actually turns out to be a pretty smart guy at the end and Jesus said, yeah, yeah, you're not you're not entirely dim. There had to be one in all of history. That's right. <laughs> I think this lawyer, it was a real question. He wasn't trying to trick Jesus. Is there something wrong with my nose? No, I'm saying you hit it right on the nose. I, I oh. think you're right. Um, it's it's Zoom speak, Harrison. It's the shorthand. Is that right? I wouldn't have done it either, Harrison. Usually there is something wrong with my nose. So that's why I'm a little paranoid. <laughs> um, I love that passage too, Bob. I, I just... Uh, that's one of the things that resonates most with me, particularly in right one, but but also, um, and I can hear the first preacher, you know, priest that I ever had growing up saying it, the one, you know, I can just hear it in his voice. I keep going back to it in, when people start quoting the Bible about the Bible says this or that, about these people are in, or these people are out, or this is sin, or this is, you know, you're going to hell if you don't, or I just come back to this. Yep. I agree with you. Really. Um, well, and what we see here, but they don't give a context, is an ancient Jewish practice of Midrash, of a rabbi giving commentary on the scriptures 
And Jesus is quoting other rabbis um, here. I mean, he's he's giving the same scriptures that they gave. Jesus is not coming up with anything new. Um, there are other rabbis who said these are the two greatest commandments. But if you boil everything down and you follow these two, everything else is going to fall into place. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a teacher, I had one rule. Be a respecter of people and property. If you do that, you're not going to get in trouble. <laughs> you know, and and I think the same thing can be said here. Um, there's a reason at Lent in our penitential season, we start with the Ten Commandments at the beginning of the service, and we name all the things you shouldn't do. But then uh, I, as the priest, come in and say, but Jesus taught us this. These are the two things. Just do these, and you've got the other ten covered. Yeah. And these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Uh, and even that phrase um, on my on the shelf behind me, let's see, right there, the brown book next to the three white books, is the Hebrew translation of the scriptures, and it's called the Tanakh. Um, the Torah, the laws, five books of Moses, which is called the Law, mm-hmm. the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Kethuvim, the writings. In the three books, white books, Torah, Nevi'im, Kethuvim, uh, a new translation that's just come out that's absolutely breathtaking. It's oh. so well done, the altar translation. Um, but I mean, they, but so Jesus is saying that um, the most important part of scripture, the Torah and the Nevi'im, can be encapsulated in these two verses. In the Kethuvim, the writings, that third section, are what we call the Psalms and Proverbs. Um, the stuff that stems off the first two. So, but the the Hebrew Bible is called, for shorthand, the Tanakh. It's an acronym: T N K. Torah, Nevi, and Kethuvi. Yeah. You know the other thing about these verses is that um, they're perhaps misleadingly they they look like ones that you can you might actually be able to do like. Giving away everything you own and following Jesus, boy, that sounds hard. Um, and and I think it's a little misleading because if you really think about this, this is, you know, this boils it down. But these are not necessarily easy things to put into practice in day to day life. I mean, that's essentially what we all struggle with on a daily basis. Um, but it sounds like we might be able to, or at least it it's more encouraging. Like you know. Well, maybe I think I could maybe try this, you know. I also think that it is how Jesus wants it to work. You know, if we're, if we really, I think Augustine said, fall in love with God with all of your heart and mind, and then do whatever you want. You know, if you can do the first, the second thing. Don't become, they're not a burden. Yeah, it's often translated, love God and do what you will. Mm-hmm. St. Augustine, Confessions, yeah. And um, that's, you know, I think that's how he, God wants us to see these commandments. Well, another way, and I'm, I'm agreeing with you, um, is that we have the commandments, and that's when we're two years old. We say no to two-year-olds all the time. Right. Two-year-olds need to hear no. Don't. 
stop. You know, because that's what they comprehend. Don't take uh, your other kid's toy. Right. And once again, and that's where we get the phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you're not afraid to do what you need to do to stay alive, be afraid of me. <laughs> you're right. But if you keep if you keep treating children like two years old, two year olds when they're 15, there's a real problem. Because if you have to keep telling your 15 year old, no, don't stop, then you failed as a parent. They failed as a child to grow up. Where's the uh, the the verse? This it's time to put away childish things. Um, First Corinthians thirteen. Yeah, Corinthians thirteen. Um, uh, and exactly right. And when we get to the thou shalt do these two things, that's you know that's where you are with your son. I hope you know he's driving. He's uh, venturing out into the world. He's right on the cusp of adulthood, from our culture's understanding of it. Um, and you know, you if you as we as I am with my daughter, um, hopefully um, to that place where I can set her forth into the world. Go, do. If you have my blessing, and as you go, do these two things. Whatever you do, love God, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And, you know, and uh, and and I think that what we're what we're invited by Jesus to do here is be our true self but also to grow up. I think that's why we move beyond fear of the Lord. We love the Lord. You know, in our book club right now, we just talked about that um, pretty strenuously. Is that uh, the invitation of God is to grow up fully into our full selves, in the full, you know, in our full maturity and in our Christ-likeness. And that's why we can get beyond the thou shalt nots. That's for when we were toddlers in the faith. And hopefully we're post-adolescents. Um, I just want to make note before we move on is that we got our last gotcha question with, uh, you know, who's, Je <laughs> who's he going to be married to? And Jesus said, you know, in heaven, they don't even marry. Don't worry. <laughs> you guys are being stupid. Now, the great irony of this is that the Sadducees who didn't even believe in heaven were the ones asking this question. Which is why he was like, oh, y'all just shut up. How long has resurrection, how long was resurrection part of Jewish theology? Was that from? So uh, um, uh, if you go back and it depends on uh, where it comes in, but the Pharisees totally believed in resurrection. I think the reason why we talk about the Pharisees so much is that the Pharisees' beliefs and Jesus' beliefs were so closely tied to each other. I mean, they were not far removed. No. They were just legalists. And he's like, Too legalistic, you know, right? Yeah. yeah, you 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 missed the boat. You know, God's about love and forgiveness, not about you know legalistic rule keeping. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Mm -hmm. Well, he was part of the Sanhedrin. I'm not. I can't remember if he was a Pharisee. I think he was. I have to double check that one. Um, but he was part of the the ruling elite. Yeah, in the Sanhedrin. And, well, we're getting off off topic, but I can. But that's John, so I, yeah, yeah. I haven't done my homework on Nicodemus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he, you know, here here he is um, telling the folks that don't even believe in a resurrection. Because for for many people, you know, there is nothing after this that you remember through your offspring. You know, and that you know, 
you go to the place of the dead. That's what Sheol is. Mm-hmm. And that's it. You know, that's, it's not our concept of hell. Far from it. In fact, most studies point to Dante being the one who invented that, not Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus' word for hell is Gehenna, which was the trashed up in Jerusalem. You right. know, where there is, you know, a, a, you know, never-ending fire. Why? To burn up the trash. It's gone. You know, and that's that's much more of a shield type of concept. You know, it's got it's gotten rid of and forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know, when I put we took out the trash right before I came over here, um, and you know, the when you take out the trash, you don't think about it again. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and that's and that's why he's calling them hypocritical. Anything else on this one? I thought more than I should have. Sorry. All right, our last reading. And once again, guys, this has been fun. Thank you so much. Starting with verse 35. Chapter 12, verse 35 to the end of the chapter. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, why do the legal experts say that the, that the Christ is David's son? David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right side, until I turn your enemies into your footstool. David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be David's son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he was teaching, he said, watch out for for the legal experts. They like to walk around in long robes. They want to be greeted with honor in the markets. They long for places of honor in the synagogues and the banquets. They are the ones who cheat widows out of their homes and to show off, they say long prayers they will be judged most harshly. Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money. Many rich people were throwing in lots of money. One poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins worth a penny. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting in putting money in the treasury. All of them were giving out of their spare change, but she came from her hopeless poverty. She, but she from her hopeless poverty has given everything she had, even what she needed to live on. So once again, we're looking at this wonderful juxtaposition of the legal experts who thought they had their act together and Jesus points to the one that nobody would have noticed at all and said, she's got her act together, not the ones who act like it. But we usually take one of those stories out of context. But you really have to do see them with much more clarity by putting them back to back. What did you guys hear? I just want to point out that when they say legal experts there, it's not the same thing as a modern lawyer. Right. I want to point that out. It's people like me. Well, I mean, that's what they're talking, I mean, they're talking about religious legal experts. The law, meaning at that time, the law was the, you know, the Old Testament law. Right. Um, not talking about, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act or something like that. No, you're right. But it's kind um, of fun to read to read when it says, uh, watch out for the legal experts. They like to walk around in long, large, long robes. Only justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. Other than that, I'm not really aware of them. 
are me every Sunday. <laughs> me too. Um, yeah, good point, Bob. I just like how Jesus sees people in their depth. He sees um, he sees beyond the superficial and sees their heart, their their whole lives. You know, he, um, that's what he connects with. Well, you know, I'm I'm, it, re, the, I'm getting resonances throughout this. You know, so the um, the resonance of love the Lord your God with all your heart, um, and then you see her giving everything she has, and then you think of the a, a few um, stories back when they were talking about you know sell everything you have and follow me. I mean, this is all it's it's just it's like repetition. You know, that's the it's the theme of of you know god wants you to be all in yep and you can't separate any of this from that idea of faith that you guys um talked about earlier um you have to understand how radical it is um for God to call us to live by faith. You know, even from the idea of a Sabbath day where we don't work, where we take a day off and God's going to provide for us for six days so that we can actually have a day where we could dedicate it to God. You know, the Sabbath was made for us to live into the fullness of who God made us to be. And if God can take a rest, we can take a rest. Um, and you know, it takes faith to say that. None of the cultures around this tiny little country had that. You worked every day of the year. You know, period. Um, and this woman who's given her all to God trusts that God will replenish and replace and provide. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what you were talking about, what we were talking about, you know, faith to move mountains and and i mean that's i think he's he's constantly talking about people who that's the people who are doing the right thing are the ones that have have the faith to motivate them to do the right thing it's like the the saint augustine example um if your heart's in the right place again where your treasure is then you almost can't help but do the right thing Anything else from this last passage? I'm glad the people like this, the dead Lord said to my Lord stuff. That one always got me cross-eyed. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. Me too. I, I wasn't following that. But obviously, this was a some sort of, um, not obvious, but... Um, contrast of David being the the son of David being the Messiah being some sort of worldly like conquering hero versus what Jesus turned out to be right right well we also are not in a 
a rigidly patriarchal society where the father's word means everything. It, on the surface, it's Jesus sort of doing to them what they were trying to do to him and ask a gotcha question. But underneath it, it was really Jesus asking these Pharisees, who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. Just making them look at that question or and, suggesting them that they well, And they would all say that they were beholden and under the authority of David. And he said, David's given his loyalty and claimed and named my authority. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it presents as one thing, but there's a depth to it. Like pretty much everything that comes out of Jesus' mouth, you know, um, that we don't get at first. Yeah. Is 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 the is his in, incredible depth of knowledge was is that essentially ascribed to God given knowledge or is he said to have I don't know I guess that's because there's no record in studying something or under somebody right correct we have well we have eighteen missing years right well in this gospel we don't even have those I mean it starts at his baptism. And that's all we get. You right. know, in Luke, we have uh, the birth narratives and then the 12-year-old narrative, the only one that has anything in between. Um, and then the, when he's 30. Seven, and that was the whole thing about the, the 12-year-old in Luke, the 12, the, is that they were all stunned that a 12-year-old would have the sort of knowledge that he was. But once again, you're looking at a nation full of people who were literate. Once again, we forget how rare that was in the world that every male child would be taught to read and could read and was expected to read. Um, and it was the, it was the um, responsibility so that every male could read the scriptures um, and lead in the prayers. It was a nation of priests. Uh, once again, we're looking at how rare they were in the world. Um, I never knew that, but yeah. I didn't know that either. That's fascinating, yeah. And also he went to synagogue every Sabbath, and um, it refers to that. And they would go through the whole Torah in the course of the year, I believe, or at least they do that now, according to. So he was he was exposed to the scriptures. Well, we uh, have wrestled with authority tonight. And, and good stuff. This has well, been great. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Rob. I, I thank you guys. This has been a blast. It really has. And I I love, um, I just love, both of you have a, a wonderful approach. Very similar in some ways, but um, um, I just love, love listening to you both and hearing your insights on things. Well, we sure appreciate you being with us tonight. Yes. And blessings on your land. Yes. Same to you. Thank you. Thank you, Harrison. Thank you, Rock. I'm gonna... We will be back next week with our final installments. Uh, we will be with the Reverend Becky McDaniel, uh, our priest associate, uh, as we wrestle with the ending of Holy Week. Uh, we will be looking at chapters 13, 14, 15, and the first little smidgen of chapter 16, 
uh, where the original, our oldest copies of Mark end with verse eight. So we will be handling three chapters and eight verses next week. Thank you for being with us. God bless. And uh, we'll be back soon. Thanks so much. Be well.